1571, in the long-running war between the Turks and the Venetians, there was a great victory for Venice at the Sea Battle of Lepanto. The following year, in a carnival procession, some 340 masked characters portrayed a serpent, representing evil Turkey, being trampled by faith. The 40 musicians played music by Andrea Gabrieli on a text which concludes, I now rightly call myself Joyful Asia, since my wicked enemy is overcome at sea. And I, Joyful Europe, rejoice no less, for after glorious trials, now under a true God, not a false Jove, I shall once more hold the reins of the world. Male voices, cornets and sackbuts, a familiar sound world of Venetian music from 1572, celebrating the Venetian victory against the Turks at Lepanto, performed by Ifagellini and the English Cornet and Sackbut Ensemble. Nearly 150 years later, in 1713, one Antonio Vivaldi, a priest, composer and violinist, went to Vicenza to oversee production of his first opera. During the same visit, an oratorio of his was performed on the subject of that same Battle of Lepanto. Rather like England's narrow victory against Australia in the 2005 Ashes, it was such a rare victory that it was celebrated for years afterwards in art, music and a range of nice little key rings and tea towels. Just three years later, the Venetians were still fighting the Turks with the help of the Austrians. In August 1716, a last victory against them at the Battle of Petrovaradin seems to have been the spur to another Vivaldi oratorio, Giudita Triumphans. A question Vivaldi scholars would love answered is whether it was also the reason for what has become one of the most famous of all Baroque choral works, one of his two settings of the Gloria. Work has been done in recent times to date the manuscript paper it was written on, and this also seems to suggest that year, as does the style of the signature. So could we ascribe the famous opening motif with trumpet as a martial reference to this battle? Perhaps, but if not, we can put it down to a typically bravura Vivaldian motif straight out of his concerto style, or perhaps a simple attempt to match the traditional images of angels playing trumpets as they announce the good news. The very distinct sound of the trumpet there is paired not with a second trumpet, but an oboe. Single oboe and trumpet might seem an unusual combination to us, but it had been established for 30 years or so at St. Mark's in Venice, where Vivaldi and his father had sometimes played. The other instruments in the piece are strings and the basic accompanying group or continuo, which we are realizing with organ, cello, double bass, bassoon, and theorbo, the long-necked lute. This is an instrument that was going out of use at St. Mark's at the time, but was still very popular amongst the all-female ensemble at the Hospital of the Pietà, where Vivaldi was employed and for which the work was surely written. More on that institution later, but today the performers are the BBC Singers, St. James Baroque, and I Must Be the Conductor. The very strong opening ideas are based around that chord of D major, both the opening clarion call and the busy response to it. This provides wonderful texture, but no harmonic movement. It's just a D major fanfare.
This is pure texture. There's no feeling of movement yet. But in the next bar, Vivaldi starts a harmonic progression that's going to lead us into the famous choral entry. And it has a similar effect to that thrilling introduction to Handel's coronation anthem of just a few years later, Zadok the Priest. Both take us on a short harmonic journey so that the eventual entry of the voices back in the tonic key, the home key, comes with a real sense of arrival. Let's hear Vivaldi's journey with the bottom note consistently pulling the top note down after it. And we've arrived at the crucial turning point which will lead into that cadence and the choral entry. But like all good things, Vivaldi wants to draw out the moment a little and so sits on the chord, gradually bringing the strings down through it in pitch. Pure texture, just like the opening. Years later, this was a standard technique, but at the time, it was novel. So now it's into the choral entry, and this time, no hanging around on the tonic for the opening, but straight onto the dominant, that pregnant chord built on the fifth note of the scale, whose function is always to lead somewhere else. This time, we're going to have more texture. The basses are left on the root of that dominant, while the higher angels move around, in fact, changing the harmony, but leaving the bass note intact, and all accompanied by a subdued version of the opening martial leap. Vivaldi now adds more harmonic contrast to increase the tension and take us into more far-flung corners of the movement. He moves to D major's relative minor, the one with the same sharps and flats as the major scale, so B minor. And then even further away from the tonic, here's what this next passage sounds like in raw harmonic form without all the instrumental fairy lights. Now hear the full version with the sustained writing for choir contrasted with the leaping string motif. After that, it's an easy trip back to the home key of D. What's slightly curious about this movement is that despite the text, glory to God in the highest, sopranos never sing above an E, which is hardly a great effort for them then or now. And as well as a modest range, all the flashy work is left to the instruments, remembering that Vivaldi was himself a violinist. The voice is just moving serenely, creating contrast with the busier instrumental writing. When the BBC asked me to write a program about the Vivaldi Gloria, my bowels did slightly groan within me. But this wonderful second movement, Et in Terra Pax, is enough to silence the grumpiest of conductors. We kick off with the band, which has three basic motifs, never to be shared with the singers. The first is a simple descending idea, painting the idea of the lowness of earth compared to the preceding movement about the heights of heaven. The second motif rises in an arpeggio, leading to a third with a throbbing pulse, despite the static harmony underneath it. Unrelated to that are the three themes which combine in the voice parts. The word terra, earth, is coloured by a static note, painting the idea of its solidity. 
Against that, an upper voice picks out a chromatic line, notes from outside the given scale. The third idea is a gradually rising one on the words Borne voluntatis, goodwill, semitone by semitone. As with the instrumental intro, it's the combination of the vocal themes that starts to play clever tricks with the harmony. Listen to the first two ideas overlaid. The tension that results draws our ear to the word peace. Fans of Renaissance music where words are colored by gestures that directly reflect their meaning might find this tortured setting of the word peace rather strange. But Vivaldi is hoping for a peace which is not yet here, at least not yet. And the tension this provokes remains the main feature of this movement. It gets stronger with the introduction of the rising theme which starts in the tenors and quickly moves to the other voices. Whether harmony leads to melody or vice versa, the rising melodic line of et in terra allows a specific harmonic flavor called the Neapolitan sixth. I first got to know about this as a small boy. There'd be music on and my father, not appearing to listen, would suddenly shout, Neapolitan sixth! <laughs> uh, to start with, I thought he meant the ice cream van had arrived. But I knew this couldn't be the case, as my father brought me up believing that when you hear an ice cream band playing music, that means it's gone back to the factory, having run out, you see. Um. <laughs> it's only later that I learned the mafia-like secrets of this harmonic parfum. Choose a key, here B minor. Take the second note of its scale. Now flatten it. And play the chord based on it. Take the bass note away, leaving the third of the chord at the bottom. Stir until smooth and bake for 30 minutes at gas number six. <laughs> Unless you're at Venetian pitch, in which case, give an extra five minutes. The chord itself isn't remarkable, it's how it fits in with other chords which makes the difference. Here's its classic delivery, tonic, followed by a Neapolitan sixth. The unstable nature of this chord is mirrored elsewhere in this movement by a general attempt to avoid settling. Peace for Vivaldi is a desire rather than a reality. Here's a cadence towards the middle of the movement. What we might expect is this. Keep your ear on the tenor. But Vivaldi gives us no safe port in a storm and directs the tenors away from such a predictable arrival and out onto further uncharted waters. Again, keep your ear on the tenor to start with.
The next turn takes us through flatter colours and then to what is allegedly the most famously Vivaldian moment of harmonic colour in the piece. But it turns out to have been a serendipitous one, resulting from a corrected error. In music theory, certain progressions are not allowed. One of these is the consecutive fifth. You're not allowed to move two voices from this interval, a fifth, directly to any other one, because it sounds ugly. In fact, this is exactly what Vivaldi first wrote at this moment. When he realised his error, his solution was to delay moving the alto until a bar later. Put that with the other voices and the resulting deliberate dissonance is powerfully rich. As the piece ends, the strings have the final word, ending low, very much on earth. However, what Vivaldi first wrote, we know this from Paul Everett's clever detective work, is the following rather brighter end. A very different colour, though one that eventually ended up on the cutting room floor. Next we come to our first solo movement, Laudamus Te. And Vivaldi's soloists would have been drawn from the choir, as is the case with the BBC singers today. Vivaldi sometimes labelled scores at the Pietà with the names of the soloists, and we should do the same. Our two sopranos are Emma Tring and Olivia Robinson. This time, the lively instrumental introduction does briefly start with the same material as used by the singers, but quickly moves off into something more pointed and instrumental in character, which also jumps through some exotic keys before ending up back in the tonic. The sopranos start in dialogue, but quickly settle to a duet texture in lovely consonant thirds to paint in oral glory the words glorificamos te, we glorify thee. You may have picked up on the accompanying figure in the strings. Vivaldi is almost Beethovenian in his miserly use of ideas. That whole passage's accompaniment was based on an octave leap, bom, 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 which itself may have come from the whole piece's opening stab, the ja da ba, 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 da ba, bum, and it's used right up until the end of the movement. After this, the Grazias Agimus Tibi introduces us to a rather old-fashioned style fugue, or chase, in which one musical idea appears at different pitches and in different voices, making up a web of sound. Again, a great contrast of texture. But the music also looks different and more old-fashioned on the page, with an old-style time signature and double-length note values. The style of writing certainly feels rather traditional amongst the modernity of what we've heard before, and the instrumental parts have no independent music, but just double the voices. Take that opening theme. <laughs> <laughs> 
A more modern and Baroque version would be with a sharpened D at the outset. Whereas Vivaldi is giving us the D natural. Vivaldi is clearly paying tribute to older music for this movement, to even sense that he's slightly uncomfortable with it. Did Vivaldi write this at all? Vivaldi's scholar, Michael Talbot, thinks he may have borrowed it from another composer, though no one has yet found such an original, unlike one of the movements to come. And with that 24-style cliffhanger, it's time to move to another solo movement. Though for those of you listening at home, the answer is a clockwork orange. A clockwork orange. One of Pietar archivist Mickey White's contentions is that Vivaldi took pleasure in bringing music from outside the confines of the Pietar to the women inside, from operatic writing to the noblification of popular song. The next movement, Domine Deus, a duet for soprano and oboe, brought to them the lilting rhythms of the Siciliana, music often associated in operas and cantatas with pastoral scenes. A wonderfully vocal flourish in the oboe to conclude the introduction, and played by our oboe soloist Gail Hennessy. When the voice enters, as with previous movements, it's not a copy of the instrumental line, but it is inspired by it, a dotted figure that moves into a flowing melisma. Both oboe and violin were much admired at the time because of their vocal qualities. And before the end of the Domine Deus, Vivaldi brings in the oboe to duet with the voice. This duet idea is continued, but between voice and cello, for the only time in the movement in which the bass line leaves its lilting octave jump, the bottom, bom, bottom, bom, to be more of an equal partner with the voice. Let's hear those two duets. The next three movements all involve the choir, and the first thing that hits you after that beautiful Siciliana is the energetic blast that runs through the next movement, Domine Fili. And this time, the string's introduction is directly copied by the voices. In some sources, this movement is marked alla francese in the French style. This refers to a style popular in the overtures to, for example, French Baroque operas, but quickly spreading elsewhere, which gives a sense of grandeur and show. The opening of Handel's Messiah is a famous case in point. In this style, dotted notes are played as double or even triple dotted, which gives a jerky but vigorous feeling. So at the opening to Messiah, for example, what is actually writ on the page is this. Thank you. 
but what is played is this. In French overtures, this vigorous opening is generally followed by a more regular fast movement, not dotted. What's unusual is to hear this dotted style at a fast speed and including voices. It instantly raises a question of taste, that of whether to break up the vocal line in the sort of disjointed way that instruments are very good at. Here's what it could sound like if we did. <laughs> This suggests to me that the voices should keep the energetic character of the francese by a more supported and connected sound than the instruments, though the strings will provide articulatory backup. This is very clearly dance music. You're probably dancing around your living rooms at this moment. I know I am, and I think you're going to have to ask me to leave. But something rather wonderful happened just at the end there. The trouble with triple-time dance music is that it can become rather four-square, if that isn't a numerically confusing adjective. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. So composers and choreographers had something up their sleeve called a hemiola in which at the end of a phrase, the beat seems to halve in speed. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. What this does is provide a moment of repose which itself generates impetus for the new departure. One of the most striking features about the way Vivaldi draws this movement to a close is his use of smooth lines to contrast with all the busyness we've heard so far. It's been there since the opening, but we probably didn't notice it in all the excitement. The first of its two elements is found as a counterphrase to the strings opening French rhythms heard in the second violin and based on appoggiaturas, those leaning notes. Then there's the bass's first phrase, that descending scale which over the course of the movement gradually loses its busyness to provide welcome lines of calm which contrast with the fiery dotted writing. You can hear them in instrumental as well as vocal lines. In general, the world of early music and period performance has focused its attention on details of instrumental practice because there are surviving instruments from the time which give us relatively clear evidence about sound, tone, pitch, etc. Much more hypothetical has been some of the work on historical vocal practice with no recordings from the time or surviving vocal folds to set into spasm. Vivaldi's Gloria poses a serious vocal performance practice question. Scholars are clear that the piece was intended for musicians of the Pietà, where Vivaldi was employed around this time. The Pietà was one of four major charitable institutions in Venice, and it served as a school, hospital, old people's home, hospice, and above all as a place where foundlings were taken in, the children of women who couldn't afford to look after them. Given Venice's laws which gave equal rights of inheritance to each male, the pressure on Venetian sons not to marry so that wealth could be left intact for a single heir was enormous and the town was full of unmarried men and a healthy or rather unhealthy sex trade made worse by all the tourists. Many unwanted babies were left at the Pietà's hole in the wall and as they grew up they were put to work. 
One way out of dull work for the girls was by performing in the coro, either as a singer or instrumentalist. Their performances were legendarily good, and the fact that they performed tantalizingly out of sight in balconies behind metal grills seems only to have increased their allure. Philosopher Rousseau wrote of the voluptuousness of their singing, but he was infuriated by those accursed grills, quote, concealing the angels of loveliness. <laughs> Though, had he got to look closer, he might have noticed the disfiguring effects on some of them due to their mother's syphilis. Charles Burney gave us an idea of how it must have been to be at a Pietà performance as such church services became. The girls played a thousand tricks in the singing. Who could go highest, lowest, swell a note the longest, or run divisions with the greatest rapidity? At the hospitals and churches, where it is not allowed to applaud in the same manner as at the opera, they cough <coughs> or blow their noses to express admiration. As they grew up, many of the girls were married off, but others stayed on, and in Vivaldi's time, there were 1,000 inmates with such an enviable standard of education that noblemen paid for their daughters to be educated there too. But the filie di coro, the daughters of the choir, as it was called, was absolutely an all-female institution. So the obvious question is, why did Vivaldi write tenor and bass parts? In recent years, various theses have been put forward to answer this. Perhaps men, on staff as teachers or as freelancers, might have been brought in. But it would have been quite improper for men to have been allowed behind the grills with the young and not-so-young ladies. It was also forbidden in the Pietà's own rules. An intriguing theory was that the tenor and bass parts were sung by girls, but up the octave. Firstly, there's no evidence for this, and in fact, there is evidence to the contrary, in that at another ospedale with an all-female ensemble, music written for just soprano and alto voices was notated in the usual way. But here's an example from a 1990s recording which tried transposing the tenor and bass parts up the octave. Taverner Consort and Players in an interesting experiment of director Andrew Parrott's inquiring mind. It has its own allure, but no evidence to support it, and hearing the at times angular tenor line above the melodic soprano surely can't be right. Eventually, scholars have started to accept that perhaps composers of Vivaldi's generation at the Pietà were meaning the tenor and bass parts to be sung by women as best they could. As Michael Talbot mentions, anyone who's ever heard a women's choir, from barbershop groups to folk ensembles, knows how low some women can sing, especially if they're doing it on a regular basis and training that part of their voice. In fact, Vivaldi's tenor parts in the Gloria are not deeply problematic for some altos, and the bass parts, always supported by the instruments, are quite clearly tailored to avoid low notes. In the movement we've just heard, the lead vocal line in the alto is accompanied by the vocal bass part, which is doubled by the continuo. The continuo plays... But the vocal bass part stops halfway down that phrase and then jumps back up the octave. The same thing happens for the tenor part. Vivaldi is avoiding notes which would be low for women. No one is suggesting at this stage that there were lots of women basses around. The Pietà's own records list very few, such as Annetta il Basso, Annetta the bass, in 1709, while at one of the other ospedale there was a signora Tiana, quote, who, although a woman, sings baritone with enough grace to transport and captivate the minds of her listeners, unquote. 
Another important factor is that despite the performance of much Baroque music these days at A415, that's a semitone lower than modern pitch, not every town or country was working to a single standard. It's known that Venetian pitch at the time was in fact just above current modern pitch, which means that lady basses would have found it easier, and in any case their part was doubled by the instruments. Just a few years ago, a choir based around the Oxford Girls Choir and conducted by Richard Vendome was formed to investigate this theory. You may have heard the issue on them in Radio 3's The Choir. Let's hear a little of them now, All Women in the Band 2. female Scola Pietatis Antonio Vivaldi, conducted by Richard Vendome, recorded in the resonance space of the current Pietà, the building built four years after Vivaldi's death. But while evidence of performance practice can tell us what musicians actually did, what composers might actually have wanted is not necessarily the same thing. The clarity of part writing is clearer with the stronger sound of male voices on tenor and bass, and so I think that Vivaldi would have been pleased that mixed voice choirs didn't feel excluded from performing his music in the centuries after he died. And I'm also not about to let half the BBC singers off early. <laughs> You're listening to Discovering Music on Vivaldi's Gloria with the BBC singers St. James Baroque and me, Robert Hollingworth. Domine Deus, Agnus Dei, the next movement, turns to the portentous dark key of D minor, and shorn of any accompanying solo instrument such as violin or viola, it's left to a solo cello, briefly elevated from its part in the accompanying continuo group, to provide an adagio, a very slow, melodic introduction. The lack of accompanying instruments seems to increase the poignancy of this solo part, played here by Mark Caudle, and of the mezzo-soprano part, sung by Jacqueline Fox, who enters over the accompaniment of the solo cello's motifs. So not just a solo movement then. In fact, at this point, it's the choir that continues with the Gloria's text, while Vivaldi asks the soloist to repeat text from previous movements, all of which calls God with personal fervor, Lord God, Heavenly King, Jesus Christ, only Son of the Father, and taking us through a variety of keys still partnered by the opening cello lines. Oh. 
The next solo movement, Quisedes Adexter Ampatris, is also for alto solo, but this time with violin and viola, and the tempo steps right up to allegro. The opening instrumental shape simply outlines an arpeggio, attaching that to something that reminds us very much of the glorious whole opening again. Though this time in triple time and in the minor. It's joined to a passage of semiquavers and short long, short long rhythms. Yet again, the solo voice reminds us of the instrumental intro, but with different material. The text is, you that sit on the right hand of the father, with the note for sitting, sedes, just sitting there, and then that dexterous figure for dexteram. It's followed by a harmonic sequence, one of the main building blocks of Vivaldi and his contemporaries' harmony. We've heard plenty of them in passing. Let's take a closer peek at one. Sequences are built on a simple harmonic cell that's repeated to make something bigger. Take this shape. Two chords with the bass note falling a fifth. If you put several in a row and drop the cell a tone each time, you get this. This doesn't imply any particular melody. It's just like the bass line and harmony to a jazz song, above which you could improvise a hundred different tunes, such as... ...sort of thing. As we come to the end of the piece, we have two more movements. The penultimate simply takes music from the opening movement, shortening the introduction, and squeezing the text in faster, not entirely getting the word stress right. Was this composed in haste? According to scholar Paul Everett, who's made a special study of the type of paper Vivaldi wrote his music on, it could have been something even more mundane. It seems that the slim gathering of manuscript paper that Vivaldi used for this movement meant that he might well have determined in advance that it be very short. It certainly seems rather abrupt, though it can't be long, as it acts as a prelude to the more expansive final movement, Cum Sancto Spiritu, with the Holy Spirit in the glory of God the Father. Amen. Like the earlier movement, Propter Maniam Gloriam, this final section is written in old style. The time signature changes to a more antique one again, and we get a nice fugue. The only difference is that in this movement, the fugue has two subjects instead of one, so it's a double fugue. Tune one starts in the bass, tune two in the soprano. However, this music is not by Vivaldi. It's long been known that he utterly filched it from a gloria by his contemporary, Giovanni Maria Ruggeri, like Vivaldi, a composer of church music as well as operas, though otherwise rather one of history's footnotes, at least so far. Vivaldi owned some scores of Ruggeri's music and was clearly much taken with this final fugue, as he used the same one to base the last movement of his other gloria on as well. 
Before we get too hoity-toity about this lack of originality, we should just consider that originality was not considered as an end in itself. Certainly in the Renaissance, it was what you did with someone else's piece that was interesting. And in the Baroque, composers regularly reused their own material, composing as they mostly were, not for posterity, but to commission, to provide suitable music for an occasion. Handel's collaborator Charles Jennens noted after lending Handel some music by Scarlatti that, I dare say I shall catch him stealing from them, as I have formerly. Ruggieri's Cum Sancto is written for two choirs and two orchestras, one with two oboes and one with two trumpets, so one more of each than Vivaldi's setting. But the two groups only sing and play together for the last six bars, so rewriting the choral parts was a non-job. Vivaldi's most notable change is a preference for altering the odd Ruggieri G-sharp to a G-natural, or vice versa, to give the entry into the cadence a rather different tug. We have the Ruggieri scores on our stands, so here's one that Ruggieri prepared earlier, picking up from where we just left off. And now Vivaldi's slight but important change. A small thing, but an important colour. More obviously, the instrumental passage that follows is considerably rewritten and a bar cut. Here's the Ruggieri original. And now Vivaldi's. The salient question is perhaps why Vivaldi felt the need to borrow at all. Time is always an issue, of course, though for a composer who wrote concertos at lightning speed, it doesn't quite ring true. More relevant is the fact that all Vivaldi's church music borrowings come in old fugal-style movements. Talbot wonders whether Vivaldi, as a violinist, felt less at ease with this church style of composition, what was suitable for it or not. On a more human level, something which we underestimated our peril with Vivaldi, he may have known Ruggieri and had a genuine affection for him and his music. Although it's been known for years that this last movement is borrowed, there will be people listening today who've known the work for years but are new to this fact. So well does this movement fit the shape of the work. And this is to Vivaldi's credit. He was making a new piece, and as such, variety and overall balance is everything. One of many reasons why the work has been performed so much since its revival 70 years ago, and I'm quite sure will be equally popular in another 70 even if melting polar ice caps have long since left Venice underwater. We're now going to hear about a project that some of the performers were involved with, Gloria Revisited. Tim Steiner guided nine A-level students from the Greycoat Hospital and St. Marylebone C of E secondary schools in a series of workshops and one-on-one -on -one sessions. And over the few weeks, the young composers each wrote a movement inspired by Vivaldi's Gloria. I'm Tim Steiner. My role on this project was to oversee the creation of nine new pieces of music for the BBC Singers and St James Baroque. The project ran over several weeks and it culminated in a full rehearsal and concert performance of the students' composition that was called Gloria Revisited. We're going to follow some of those students' journeys, which began with an introductory workshop at the BBC's Maida Vale studio. Does anyone know this piece, Vivaldi Gloria? If I heard it, I'd probably recognise it. Have you played in it or sung? Yes, I sung Vivaldi Gloria in Chamber Choir. Listen to it maybe a bit? Yeah, a little bit. I've got someone on it, MP3, because I like the violins. I think it's an amazing piece. 
and it would have taken a long time for him to write it. My hope for this project was that we ended up with some really great music inspired by Vivaldi, the BBC singers and the St James Baroque. But it also had to be music inspired by the aspirations of the young composers. I've come on this like journey to achieve something for myself. It's thrilling, you know, because, I mean, how many people get to have their pieces, you know, performed? It's a great privilege. I think there's always going to be nerves because, I mean, we're, we're quite young, we're only 16 and we don't have half as much experience as the average composer has. My fear for the project is that I don't achieve what I wanted to achieve. I'm worried the level of um, theory that it's going to be because it's not my strongest point. I hope to learn more about writing pieces for a choir because I've never done that before. Nervous I might not come up with anything. Young composers, when they write music, can really come up with some amazing things, things that professionals and uh, more experienced composers rarely do. They've got a kind of wonderful naivety about the possibilities of making music. There's no preconceptions about what's right, what's wrong, what technically they should or shouldn't be doing. They just try things out. Sometimes it's disastrous, but very occasionally it's brilliant. My name's Daniel and I'm from Marlebone. St Marlebone. In all fairness, I'm not really a classical kind of person. I don't personally listen to it like I don't make an active effort to listen to classical music, but I do like composition. I always find like starting a piece is the most difficult part. I think you just have to start and then even if you don't like it, you've got something down and you can change it and be like, actually, I think it would be better if I moved that note here or if I changed the rhythm and that's more like what I want. And pretty sure everyone's the same but I have so many ideas in my head but I don't know how to get them down on the page. I have a very short attention span when it comes to ideas because I like to keep moving. See that's my problem. I had too many ideas. My mind is very active. It's all over the place. Within the workshops one of my jobs was both to make them feel relaxed so they would come up with ideas but then also to kind of rein them in and get them to focus to stop them being overwhelmed by it all. The key thing in writing music and getting it finished is simplicity. If you have four ideas and none of them are working, ditch three of them and work on just one idea. These pieces are only one minute, and so if it's one minute of a beautiful soaring melody over a lovely eight-bar chord progression, that will sound fantastic. If it's one minute of loads and loads of ideas kind of working as a fugue but not really working quite right, then that won't sound good and you won't go away feeling so satisfied with it. So it's getting something that, yeah, is strong, clear, simple and works. I'm Zaya Khan and I'm from the Great Coat Hospital. Mine's a very simple idea. I wanted it to be minor, very slow, different. The layout, the format, the way it's evolved, it's totally different to the original, because I've put my own ideas and composers that influenced me into my piece. Hopefully, um, they will like it. I hope they will. As long as I'm happy, it's okay. No matter what anybody else says, if you as a composer like what you hear, then that's fine because it's your piece and you are ultimately in charge of it. At the end of the day, nobody else might like your music at all. Don't worry about it, okay? You're the boss. Unless you're writing for a brief and that brief is people need to like your music, it doesn't matter. And the majority of the greatest composers have all written music that have had audiences that have hated it. And Vivaldi is included in those composers. My name's Harriet Jones and I come from St Marlebone School. I often find, because like, I dance as well and I choreograph, I often find like, I get inspiration 
when I'm just kind of not doing anything. I don't really have to think about anything. And it's just, things kind of just come to you. I was in bed one evening and just started kind of singing to myself, as you do, and came up with a little riff. And then went back and put on some alias, where if I'm sitting in front of a computer, I never get any good ideas. And I always have to sit there for hours plodding along and it never comes out right, I always end up deleting it. Whereas if I'm getting it and I'm not actually planning to get it, then that always happens and works well. First, first of all, it, it was just the melody, the little just came to me. But after that, it was less inspiration, more just working with what I had, because that's what Tim said. I've just taken this one idea and I'm kind of reducing it gradually even more. So it's not anything like how I started off. When Tim said that I should use chords, it changed my whole piece really completely. I always used to just start with the melody, see how it goes from there. But now I think I have a better understanding of how music actually works. My name's Zoe Stoll and I'm from St Marlebone School. My composition is essentially a slow movement which is kind of inspired by the slower movements in Vivaldi, Gloria. Tim came and gave us a session about like doing something that's quite individual as well as inspired by Vivaldi. I feel at this stage of the project quite happy. Everyone's pieces are coming together. It actually sounds proper and it feels like it's a proper composition. When the students finally heard their pieces performed by the BBC Singers and St James Baroque, their responses were somewhat mixed. It's fair to say that for most of them, I think they were pretty pleased with the overall results, but one or two of them were kind of surprisingly disappointed. Uh, Dan, for example, wasn't all that happy with how his piece sounded. I don't really like it, to be honest. I, I, don't, know, I don't know how to explain it to you. Um, though there's nothing in particular that I would change. It's not like, well, I would do this to it and this to it to improve it. It's just I don't really like it. People could tell me that they like it till the end of the day. and I don't really like it, so it doesn't really make much difference to me. Every composer has felt like this at some point in their career, but Dan's got another 70 years of composing ahead of him. If he keeps composing, one day he'll sit back and suddenly realise, I've now written a piece that I do like, and that's what he's got to strive for, and that's what he will achieve eventually. When I look at how much all of the students have learnt and developed, it really does surprise me. And when they step back and they reflect on just how much they've achieved on this project, I think they might just be a little bit surprised themselves. Yeah, I think I've developed a bit as a composer. I've learnt different techniques and stuff, so I think I've developed as a composer. It's not necessarily just techniques that I've learnt that could be applied to a specific type of music, it's just in general how I view composing is completely different. So yeah, it will definitely apply to some of the other things that I will compose in the future. Not necessarily classical, but it will still be relevant. This stuff will still be relevant. I now realise that composition isn't about just sounding correct all the time. Uh, it isn't just about all the harmonies working and being interesting melodies. It's about how you like it to sound. And if it sounds dissonant and doesn't sound traditionally correct, it doesn't have to. If, it's, if you've got a reason to have it sounding that way, then you just keep it that way. It feels like 
it's, we've really accomplished something really good. I'm not saying ours is as good as Vivaldi, but I felt like it was professional because there were all these professionals singing it, so it felt very good. I recommend the feeling. <laughs> In the final concert, I don't think there was a single member of the audience or of the performers that would have said it was anything other than a thorough success. It was just the most fantastic piece of music and way, way more than we could have anticipated. I set out on this project wanting to get some great new music written, something that an audience would sit back and, and listen to and thoroughly enjoy. And that is what we've got at the end of this project.